want to jump into this morning's message. If, if uh, I could get one of you guys to set up a whiteboard for me, that would be great. I'm going to come on up here uh, so that you guys can see me and that I'll have easy access to the whiteboard. And those of you that have seen me draw before, you know you're in for a treat. And those of you that know what I'm talking about know that that is a joke because I'm horrible at drawing, okay? Uh, But today we are uh, continuing in the second week of our Ashes to Fire series. And uh, this series is really focused on um, the reality of the resurrection and reminding us that the resurrection is not something that we just celebrate or observe on a single day uh, during the year. But the resurrection is an ongoing reality in our lives that makes a difference for us every single day. And so uh, we want to look at that. Now, to start the second week of this uh, series that I've entitled King Jesus Moves into the Neighborhood, I want to tell you about my eighth grade math class. Uh, I promise you we will get somewhere with this. But when I was in eighth grade, uh, I was in honors algebra, if I don't say so myself. Um, So there I was. I was in honors algebra, and uh, I had the the teacher um, was uh, a grown man But he uh, seemed very much like one of us, an eighth grader, right? And so he was, uh, let me describe him to you. He was this guy that was, uh, he was super tall so that his kind of thinned out and uh, gray flat top would brush the top of the door when he walked in. So he's a really tall guy. He he loved to to laugh and to smile. And when he smiled, he had a, a gap in his two front teeth that was just enormous. And so he had this really uh, funny smile. And, and when he laughed, he had this fake kind of laugh. He would say, <laughs> And uh, just to give you an idea of, of how uh, maybe how much he identified with eighth graders, there was this concept that I have no idea what it really is in math, but I remember this. Uh, he, there was this, this math concept, and those of you that are um, really smart in math, you'll know what I'm talking about, but there's this math term uh, called asymptotes. And he's the kind of guy that every time he said asymptotes, he'd go, <laughs> I said asymptotes. So that's just the kind of guy he was, right? So uh, I just want to give you a pretty good, pretty good clear picture of him. And, and he, um, in, in eighth grade, he taught us about this, this concept in math called the parabola. Uh, but he didn't call it a parabola. He called it a parabola. And he would say that. He's like, Let's, today we're going to talk about parabolas, right? And so uh, I want to talk to you today about parabolas, uh, some of you are like, I've heard of that term before, but I have no idea. Uh, let me tell you what a parabola is. It is a set of all points that are equidistant from a point and a line. And that line is called the directrix. I'll get it right. And then the point is called the focus. And each point on the parabola is as far from the directrix as it is from the focus. Everybody got a clear idea? What, that didn't clear things up for you? All right, so let me, uh, so here we got, you know, this is uh, two axes, X and Y. This is the focus. These things are the directrix. A parabola is something similar to this, where the dots would be equidistant uh, from here. So they're equidistant from all sides. Now, obviously, this is not to scale. But if you were to connect then all the dots, the parabola would look something like that. Some of you are like, that's right. Right. I remember eighth grade. And so if you were to draw it, it looks like something like that. Now, this is a, a mathematical expression that has all sorts of real applications in our world. For example, the shape of the reflector in a flashlight bulb is in the shape of a parabola. Uh, it is the curve 
the curve of a baseball when it is either thrown or hit is in the form of a parabola. Now, that parabola would be turned on its side and it would be much wider, not quite as high of arc, but that is, in fact, the shape. It also, if you guys aren't baseball fans, uh, there is, this is true in basketball too, the arc that the basketball takes to the hoop is a parabola. Some of you are like, this is all very inspirational, but what in the world does this have to do with Jesus, church, or God? And did I come for a math lesson or did I come to be inspired by the word of God? Well, let me tell you, you came to be inspired by the word of God because what I want to talk to you today is another real life application of the parabola. And it is going to blow your mind. Okay, so but to get us set up, I want to read to you uh, Hebrews, the first two chapters What did he just say the first two chapters? Yes, indeed, I did. Uh, Hebrews, we don't know who wrote Hebrews, but we do know that the author of Hebrews is a preacher. And we have a pretty good sense and and feel historians and theologians and people that sit in offices all day and study this kind of stuff. They have a pretty good idea that what we find as the book of Hebrews in our Bible is actually a manuscript to a sermon, which is why I like it so much. Here's a preacher, and we have a manuscript from one of his sermons. So, uh, And what he does, this preacher, what he does in the first couple of chapters, and of course throughout the whole book, is that he gives us a really strong Christology. Now, Christology is sort of a fancy way of saying a way of thinking about Christ. And so as we come across the book of Hebrews, what we have presented to us is this really strong, convicting, inspiring, profound way of thinking about Christ or Christology. And I think that the parabola is going to help us begin to understand the, the message of this preacher. And it's also going to help us how, help us understand how the preacher understands Christ and how he wants his congregation to begin thinking about Christ. So uh, here we go with the marathon reading of Hebrews chapters 1 and Two. You can follow along, you can simply listen, uh, but I encourage you to stay tuned in for the entirety of the reading because this is powerful, powerful stuff. It says this. Now in the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various places. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And after he has provided purification for, the sin, for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he had inherited is superior to theirs. For which... Uh, For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son and today I have become your father. Or again, I will be your father and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. And in speaking of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his servants 
flames of fire. But about the sun, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. And your righteousness will be a scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness. You have hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. And he also says, in the beginning, O Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you will remain the same. And your years will never end. For to which of the angels did God ever say, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? And are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? Starting with chapter 2. We must therefore pay careful attention to what we have heard and, and so that we will not drift away. For if the message spoken by angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how then shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? But this salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. Now God also testified to him by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributing each according to his will. But it is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has once testified, typical to a true, true preacher. Someone, somewhere, said this. <laughs> but there is some place where someone has testified. What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. For you made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor. And you put everything under his feet. And in putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at the present time, we do not see everything subject to him. But we do see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. And in bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them Brothers, But rather, he says, I will declare your name to my brothers. And in the presence of the congregation, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here I am and the children that God has given to me. And since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might destroy the one who holds the power of death. That is the devil. And he would free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is the word of God. Hebrews chapter 1 and 2. Now, 
I wanted to read to you a, a big section of the beginning of his message so that uh, I would resist the temptation and that you and I would resist the temptation to take just a little part of the message and then begin to pull it out of context. For I feel like there's a movement, there's a, there's a flow to what is being said here as any good sermon does. And so uh, what you probably did not notice though is that in this beginning of the message, the message itself, the sermon itself takes on this same parabolic shape, right? Now, he starts by saying, and I want to point this out to you, because he begins his message by proclaiming the majesty of Christ. He says in verse 2, through whom he made the universe. In other words, Christ is not just, uh, present at the crea- not just present at the creation of the world, but he is the acting agent. In other words, Jesus Christ, the word of God, is the one speaking creation into being. He is the agent of creation in the world. Verse 2 says, And so the Hebrew writer, the preacher, is starting at this point. He wants us to have a picture of the majesty of Christ. In verse 3, just one verse later, he says, The Son is the very radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of the Father. In other words, Christ is not somehow inferior to God the Father, but rather he is God. In the flesh. God become flesh. Now this is significant to the sermon. Because what the preacher wants to help us move away from. Is this sort of hierarchical. uh, um, Hierarchy between God the Father. In other words. When we think about God the Father. Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit. Many times. While we may not know this. The way we operate in our lives is we sort of had a hierarchy where God the Father is the coolest. Jesus is very, very cool, but not quite as cool as God the Father. And then the Holy Spirit is great, but he's not quite as cool even as Jesus. Do you know what I'm talking about? We don't intend to do this, but a lot of times in our language, in the way we operate in our lives, we create a hierarchy of the Godhead. And what the Hebrew preacher wants to say is that Jesus is co-eternal and he's co-equal and In fact, he is the very agent of creation in the world. And so he's trying to reduce the temptation to think about the Godhead as a hierarchy. Are you with me? Very good. Okay, so that's what he's trying to do. The majesty of God and the majesty of Jesus Christ. In other words, verse 10, let's talk about this as well. He says, speaking about the Son, he says, In the beginning you laid the foundations of the earth. He is setting out for us this truth that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, is pre-existent with the Father. He is there in the heavens, the agent of creation, co-eternal, co-equal. He is in God's realm, right? And we've talked before about heaven and earth and how we've got to get the, away from the idea of, of, of heaven sort of being up there and out there somewhere and earth being totally separate from heaven, but rather we need to think about heaven as being the realm of God or the space of God, earth being the realm of man. And while they're, they're not completely separate, they are intermingled, they're intertwined. We see heaven breaking in right here on earth. And so there's this overlap between them. They're not the same, but there's an overlap overlap between them. And so if we think about this, what the Hebrew writer and the preacher is essentially saying is that Jesus Christ began in God's realm. And he is the one, the very son through whom creation is made. And so if we're applying this to the shape of the parabola, right, then we have 
Jesus, the Son, through whom, through whom, you like that correct English? Through whom creation is made. Jesus begins at the top of the parabola. Now, in the second chapter of Hebrews, the the preacher switches gears. There's a transition in the message. And he moves from talking about Christ, who is superior to angels and the agent of creation. And he moves to talking about Christ, who was made a little bit lower than the angels. This is quite a difference, right? I mean, in the first chapter, he's talking about Jesus, the majestic Christ, being superior to the angels, for whom about any angel has God ever said, I am his father and he is my son. And so we, on one hand, we have the majesty of Christ on the first chapter and then in the second chapter we have this interesting little thing about talking about Christ who was made a little lower than the angels. Now, the phrasing is important here. And he says somewhere, somewhere, or somebody somewhere once said, right? And what we know because we have all the text is that he's actually quoting Psalm 8. He's quoting Psalm 8. And Psalm 8 also talks about humanity being made lower than the angels. And in Psalm 8, what is important is the distinction that he's trying to make. The psalmist is trying to raise up humanity as the crown of creation, being made just a little bit lower than the angels. But when the Hebrew preacher goes back and references this very same phrase, he doesn't talk about it in terms of of how humanity is raised up in the crown of creation. What he's talking about is how Christ is made low. And so he flips the same terminology over on its head and doesn't use it to talk about you and I, but rather talks about how Christ has been made like you and I. As as I've titled this message, King Jesus moves into the neighborhood, right? He's talking about humanity, uh, humanity in Psalm 8 is high, and then quoting Psalm 8 in, in Hebrews is Christ made low. Now, the interpretation here is really important. There's two possible ways of understanding this phrase, made a little lower than the angels, or made lower than the angels. One is, we could precisely say, uh, he was made a little lower than the angels, which is a statement about position, right? He's made just a little bit lower than the angels. And this is how Psalm 8 uses it to talk about you and I, to talk about the crown of humanity being uh, the, the peak of creation. Now, we could also say, it is also a possible translation to say, you made him for a little while lower than the angels. So that is a statement about time. And I think the second is more accurate because the preacher is saying that Jesus began co-eternal, uncreated, right? Jesus is not a created being. He's a a being made flesh, an incarnate being. And so Jesus is here co-eternal, co-equal with God the Father. And he he was for a little while incarnated and made a little lower than the angels. And he uses that phraseology to say equal with you and I so that he may call us brothers and sisters. That's the power of, Of the incarnation. In other words, Jesus, in understanding this phrase as made for a while lower than the angels, we understand that Jesus is not just kind of dipping his little toe in the pool of suffering just to check out the waters, but he is for a moment in time purposefully 
and redemptively plunging into the depths of human suffering and human weakness. This is the power and the profound nature of the incarnation. The preacher is saying that Christ left his place of majesty in order to identify with and ultimately redeem humanity. Are you with me? Powerful truth. In other words, Paul, in Philippians chapter 2, puts it this way. Christ, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be exploited, but made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness and being found in the appearance of a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And then we also have this interesting little uh, phrase by the Hebrew preacher when he says, it was fitting that God would make Christ perfect through suffering. It was fitting that God would make Christ perfect through suffering. That, to the original congregation, is a scandalous comment. Scandalous. Because you and I, we've become used to the idea of a crucified Messiah. Right? I mean, we've, we've been talking about it, and humanity has been dealing with it for 2,000 years. We've become used to the idea of a Messiah who suffered greatly, who died brutally, and then was raised triumphantly. And we've become so used to the idea, in fact, that we often even ignore it. Yeah, that's Jesus, crucified, dead, buried, and then resurrected. And we talk about it like it doesn't even matter. We talk about it as though it's just this sort of fact in history. But when the Hebrew preacher says it was fitting that, that Christ would be perfected through suffering, that is a scandalous comment. I mean, the last thing in the Hebrew mind that they would describe as fitting is the notion of God being roughed up and sweltering in human pain and then the heir of all things, the one who sustains all things by his powerful word, being bullied by some Romans, marching up to Golgotha and then facing a brutal execution. They would describe that as anything but fitting. And yet, this is what the preacher says. It is fitting that Christ would be made perfect through his suffering. And what the preacher is doing is he's actually refashioning, reusing, flipping this, this scandalous idea up on its head, and he's using it in a particularly Christian way. In other words, he's saying it was fitting that Christ would suffer because through his suffering, he would serve his purpose as the redeemer of the world. He would be made perfect in suffering. Not because he wasn't perfect or not because he had some moral shortcoming that he had to overcome. But because precisely through his suffering, he is redeemed. In other words, the preacher makes this clear. The one through whom creation was made and the one who displays the radiance of God the Father, the one who is greater than the angels and for a little while is made lower than the angels so that he might taste death for everyone, and in tasting death free us all from evil, then that he would become our high priest, achieving the atonement of our sins. And what the preacher is talking about is that through Christ, you and I have been made one with God again. Through the work of Christ, you and I are reconciled to God. That's why we call it the atonement. It's at one meant through this death 
of this one who deserves all majesty and glory and honor and yet for a little while made himself lower than the angels. He moved into our neighborhood. It is precisely through that work that you and I are redeemed and that you and I are reconciled and that possibility with God is made available. The possibility for relationship with God is made available to us. The work is complete through Christ. You've been reconciled to God. So now be reconciled to God by responding to this great love, who, this great act on your behalf. But the scope of salvation cannot simply be narrowed to the crown of creation humanity. We must open up cre- salvation to understand that through the death of Christ, all of creation will be redeemed and, in fact, is right now being redeemed. And so... Through this movement downward, this taking on flesh and suffering, you and I are rescued. And so the bottom of the parabola becomes the Son in whom creation is redeemed. The movement of being the majestic Christ Deserving all and yet becoming like you and I. We've talked about the reality that we can't, we can't talk about Jesus as being our homeboy. And a homeboy is, is, is somebody who is the same as us from the same neighborhood, from the same economic status. And so we must wrestle with the fact that while Jesus is a king, he is a king who moves in to our neighborhood so that he can identify with us, so that he knows what it's like to suffer and to hurt and to feel broken and to be tired. And what's really interesting is that while the preacher talks about Christ being, the, being suffering, Suffering Christ, the dying of death for us all. He also talks about Christ being the heir of all things. Crowned with glory and honor. Seated at the right hand of God. And all creation being subject to him. So while this majestic Christ moves into the neighborhood, he is exalted again to the highest place. In other words, at the top of the opposite side of the parabola, we have the Son by whom creation is ruled. This parabolic movement of Jesus Christ has so many powerful implications for our lives. Now I know... I love what the preacher says because he, he makes this dramatic statement about all creation being placed under the rule and the authority of Jesus Christ. And he makes this, this proclamation. I would, I would imagine that as a preacher myself, 
And he makes that proclamation and, and he proclaims that truth in order to be an encouragement to his listeners and his congregation. He wants to say to them that no matter what you're going through today, no matter how, how much your life seems to be unraveling, there's a truth that I want to proclaim to you today and that is that all creation is under the authority and the rule of Jesus Christ who was once exalted, then made precisely like us and is exalted once again to the highest place. And so may this be an encouragement to you today. But as any good preacher, he recognizes reality. So he makes this great proclamation to encourage his congregation, to lift them up, to encourage them. And then he says, probably some of you have the question, then why doesn't it feel like Jesus is ruling over the place? Why doesn't it in my life feel like Christ has authority? And if he has authority, then wouldn't everything be, be brought according to his plan? And so the preacher in one sentence makes this enormous proclamation that all of creation is under uh, the authority of Christ, is subject to Christ. And then he immediately says, yet at the present time, we do not see that. He recognizes the overlap of heaven and earth. He recognizes that Jesus, uh, he recognizes this, this tension that we live in between heaven that is breaking through, new life that's made available to us, and yet the brokenness that you and I sometimes feel. And so he says, all of creation is subject to Christ, yet at the present time we don't see, every, we don't see everything subject to him, but we do see Jesus, he says. We do see Jesus. The preacher is essentially putting two pictures side by side for us and saying, check this out. On one picture is the brokenness of our neighborhood, our appetites that have gotten, uh, that have gotten out of balance, skewed, out of proportion. We call that sin. And on the other picture, we see Jesus moving into the neighborhood, not as a stranger or an alien, but as a king who has become like us, so the exact representation of God, so that sin and the effects of sin may be rescued and redeemed. And so this king knows what it's like to suffer, to sweat, to be tired. Listen to this quote from a commentator that I read this week. It says, The preacher is saying that when the gaze of the eternal Son of God encompasses a criminal on death row, and when the glorified Son of God sees a homeless woman crawling into a cardboard box to keep from freezing in the night, when the, when the Lord of all sees a man robbed of his dignity and purpose by schizophrenia, when the divine heir of all things sees a mother weeping over the death of her child, or a man battling the last savage assault of cancer, or the swollen belly of a child slowly starving to death, he does not see a charity case, he does not see a hopeless cause, but rather the king of the universe sees a brother and a sister. That is the profound nature of the incarnation of King Jesus moving in to the neighborhood. And I believe that there are two things that you and I can take away from this truth and this reality of the parabola of Jesus Christ, the movement of Christ into history and in our world. Number one is that we can recognize that we have a helper. That's where the preacher ends this section before he goes on to another transition into greater truths. He says, because 
because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those when they are being tempted. The great truth that I want to share with you today is that you have a helper. When you are tempted, you are able through the power of the Holy Spirit, the very Spirit of Christ that lives in you, you are able to withstand. There is a way out. You can live in victory through Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ. And when you're scared, you are not alone. And when you are broken, you have a king who knows what it's like to be broken. The very king you serve in your moments of brokenness has himself been broken. This is a great Christmas message, isn't it? This is the truth that we celebrate at Christmas. When you are suffering, you have a rescuer that is familiar with suffering and and who has the resources as a king to help you out. King Jesus moved into the neighborhood. The second thing that I want to share with you is that later on in this same sermon, this same message, the preacher goes on to say that that faith is being... um, Hopeful for what we uh, cannot see, well, certain of what we cannot see, and hopeful for what we know is true. Faith is the certainty of things we do not see. And so there's this truth between what we see and what we hear. And I want to place us back into the original audience that was living and breathing with Jesus Christ in the flesh. What they saw was Jesus arrested and treated like a common criminal. It would be easy to believe only that which we see, but they went on to believe that which they know is true through the proclamation of this story. And that is that he is now crowned with honor and glory. So what they saw was Jesus crucified as a common criminal. What they know is true is he is crowned with glory and honor. What they saw was Jesus dying in agony. But what they heard is that he is dying to redeem all of creation and to make all things brand new. So faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we cannot see. And so in our lives... When what we see all around us seems to be threatening our faith, robbing our faith. Because it's so easy to go with what we see. May I encourage you through faith to trust in what you cannot see. And to trust in the proclaimed word of God. This is one of the reasons, and I've said this before and I know I'll say it again. But this is one of the reasons why in a difficult time in your life, when everything that you see seems to be robbing you of your faith and pulling faith apart, it is critically important to be a part of a community that can proclaim the truth of God to you. And so that what you hear can become stronger and more foundational to you than what you see, because that is the messy nature of faith itself, being certain of what we cannot see and being certain of what we hope for. And so I want you to know today just two things, those two things, that Jesus is a helper to you. Because of this truth and this reality that King Jesus has moved into the neighborhood, he's familiar with whatever brokenness you feel. He's familiar with being lonely. He's familiar with what it feels like to be abandoned by people that you thought were your closest 
friends. He knows what it's like. And yet, he is now exalted and interceding for you so that he can form in you more and more Christ-likeness. You have a helper. And then, to trust not always what we can see, but what we cannot see. And to live in the reality of the spoken and ever-present truth of God in our lives. That is my hope and my prayer for you today.